Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our theme today is Deeper into the Mystery, and my guest is Whitley Strieber, author of more than 40 books including many well-known horror and science fiction novels, such as Wolfen. There are also a number of best-selling nonfiction books, including Communion, A True Story, Breakthrough, The Next Step, Solving the Communion Enigma, What is to Come, The Key, A True Encounter, The Secret School, Preparation for Contact, Transformation, The Breakthrough. He is also co-author with Ann Streber, the late Ann Streber, of The Communion Letters, The Truth is Out There for Those Who Dare to Read It, and The Afterlife Revolution. He is co-author with Professor Jeffrey Kripal of The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, and he wrote the Forward for Jacques Vallée's book, Dimensions, a casebook of alien contact. His newest book, which includes a forward by Jacques Vallée and an afterword by Jeffrey Kripal, is simply titled Them. Whitley lives in Southern California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Whitley. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, as always, Jeffrey, it is a great pleasure to be here in this wonderful enterprise you have created. New thinking aloud, thank goodness. As I recall, Whitley, we we did an interview a little over two years ago about your book about Jesus. And I think you told me at that time you thought that would be your last book, and I'm very glad it wasn't. Well, at my age, you always think, well, this is surely my last book. But this time, after having announced that Jesus was my last book, I decided not to announce that Them was my last book. And indeed, I'm working on a new book right now. I'm delighted to know that because it seems as if with each book, you have more and more to say. You keep delving deeper and deeper in, into the mystery that you've been confronted with now for the last 35, 40 years. Confronted as a mystery for all of these years now, yes. And uh, I'm working very hard on understanding language and communication in relation to it now. That's my present journey. And um, them, of course, was an attempt to uh, to d demonstrate first the extraordinary strangeness of this other mind and then to show how we have attempted to respond to it so far. Not very well, but we've tried. Well, one of the most interesting points that you make is, is that all of this government 
commotion, ups and downs, and particularly secrecy, you think may have been provoked by them rather than uh, from within the government itself, but more as a response to what uh, the government was confronted with. Well, exactly. I think that they sought to control the situation from the beginning, and uh, they did that by uh, coming to us in ways that would ensure that we would keep their presence secret. And the, the, the reason I think that they emerged, and I, I think increasingly that they've been here for a very long time. In fact, I'm, I'm reasonably sure of it at this point. Um, and the reason they emerged was is quite clear. Their warnings about nuclear war and uh, climate change are consistent through the my, not just my encounter with them, but the encounters of so many other people. Uh, so I think they are interested in our survival. In other words, they have some kind of a stake here. I wouldn't say it's necessarily altruism, but in the sense, the same sense that a shepherd has an interest in his flock. And, you know, there's all kinds of uh, resonances when I even use that phrase. In, in it. But at the same time, there's a very dark side to it, too, because, you know, it's true enough that a shepherd uh, must keep his flock so he can shear the flock year after year. But so also must a farmer keep his pigs for a very different reason. And we, we're, we're not quite clear as to which it is. Yeah, you do cite H.G. Uh, Wells' novel, The Time Machine, and, and, and the idea of the Morlocks and the Eloi, and how, how the Eloi are being uh, harvested by the Morlocks for food. And it does seem as if, uh, I, I know you quoted uh, that great writer whose uh, tip is, whose <laughs> whose name is on the tip of my tongue, who who suggested that we are uh, a crop that we are being farmed by them. By them. Charles Charles Ford, of course. At our age, Jeffrey, the two of us together can hopefully get the names off the tips of our tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, exactly. And he he the question is very simple. Well, first, to go back to make the question, to form it a little bit, this is not about the physical body directly. It is about something that grows in the physical body, which is the record of experience, which is a vastly complicated thing. And I can describe to you what it's like to, to uh, uh, taste that record in the way they do, because I've done that. And it is quite remarkable. In any case, that is what is at stake here. And exactly what they want to do with it is the question. In other words, they are, I perceive them as being a presence that sees time from the outside somehow. In other words, they, they, they don't play the game, they are watching the game. And as observers, they are also uh, unable to participate in the thrill of the game. 
they, they're not really alive in the same way we are, in other words, because they're not inside the stream of time. They're looking at, at it from the outside and they know its form and its future to an extent, to a great extent. I didn't put this in the book, and it's a very hazy memory is the reason, but I believe I have experienced a few minutes of being like them, being outside of time. And for those few minutes, I was a ro like a robot. I didn't perceive anything as new. I perceived it all as it was like being in a permanent state of deja vu. Let me put it that way. And it was after a few, at first it was startling. And then after a few seconds, it was horrifying. And I thought to myself, what if I never get out of this? And I felt an extraordinary sense of being trapped. And I realized after that, that this could be the reason they are with us. Because for us, everything is always new. Every moment is new. You know, my wife said it quite beautifully, and did once, um, uh, uh, the moment is all we have. Now is life. But if you don't have the now, you don't really have life as we know it. But what if you could take that from someone who did have it and bring it into yourself and use it as a kind of entertainment is and then that 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 somehow diminishes its impact because it's much more much more intense than ordinary entertainment i think uh if you could do that you would quickly become addicted and we may be dealing indeed with people who are addicted to us well, it sounds like something of a parasitic relationship, the, the way you're describing it. A sheep would describe our relationship with it as parasitic. A pig would describe it quite differently. And the question is very clear. When you have lived a life and you exit the physical world, and I know that we have many people in this world who live by the illusion that there is nothing but the physical world, but it is just an illusion. And actually, in the context of human the history of human thought, not even a very important one. Uh, the and you exit this life, you bring with you all that you have been, all that you have experienced, and in incredible startling detail. What if someone were to take that and leave you naked, a completely innocent, unshorn, or rather a shorn being, not a great, beautiful big sheep anymore, but a little thin animal who's very cold and desperately needs to get back into the, the womb and into the warmth of life? Is that what's happening? And if so, is that all that's happening? Or is it that when we die, everything is taken, 
and the vast amount of genetic potential that exists in the species is all that is needed to create new human beings. In other words, we're, we're completely taken and uh, you cease to exist and become part of the memories and experience of an entirely different kind of being. I don't know which is which, but I think that both things are going on. And I also think that some people are given the chance to ex live on, but not all. And it depends very much on how you have valued your life and what you want to retain of it. I think that there is, um, uh, there is not an arbitrary theft of being, but rather what we ignore and don't want, they'll take. They're much more like, uh, like, uh, not so much like predators as scavengers. Well, you're describing something very much akin to Mephistopheles and the Faust legend that he, he collecting souls. Well, to an extent, but, and I, I think that, you know, they've, I, I, I have to talk about a little bit here about being out of the body. I'm much too, they don't trust me enough. I have a, history in my life of being a prankster, which ended sadly when I wrote communion because I realized I couldn't pull off any more pranks because people would say, oh, the whole thing is a prank. So I've stopped. But in my earlier life, especially in my youth and childhood, I was, I followed my, in my father's footsteps, playing pranks and practical jokes. They are aware of this and therefore don't let me get out of my body on my own. It's supervised very carefully. Mm. But uh, when you are out of your body, you don't know what you don't have. In other words, I've been out of my body quite a few times under their supervision and in some cases actually interacting with people in important ways, important ways to them because I can be seen at times. So... Uh, but what uh, it, it, I don't know is I don't even know if I know my own name. I know the feeling of me. I feel I am myself. But I don't know if I have access to the whole enormous richness of my life. I'm there then in that moment. And that's all I know. I am me and I am here. And I can look back and see my body lying on the bed, but I am not. Um, uh, I'm. I'm not aware of what I. You can't be aware of what you don't know. You see what I mean? So I don't know what I. You take. I don't know what we take with us, and or, nor do I know if, when you leave your body for the last time, if all of that richness comes with you. Uh, the richness of life. I can tell you a story about that richness of life that came to me in an experience with the visitors, with the the old lady on the cover of Communion, who I often wonder if she's still with us, 
in any case, um, you know, when you were with her, it was it was like being with a very strange-looking person. It wasn't so much like being with an alien at all. Um, and and then she would fix you with those eyes, and you would really feel a sense of predation or hunger. It, it could be terrifying very immediately. And interest and awareness, all of those things, all mixed up in one in those extraordinary eyes. In any case, um, I went out to, I, I was trying to get them to sit down and talk with me on a, on a normal basis, the way we do, not knowing at the time how far that, how unlikely that would ever be. And it was in the a cold February morning, and I guess in 1988 or 89, I went out, I heard this noise, uh, a, a great mourning sound like a chauffeur or a blowing or a great, great trumpet. And I knew it was them. I hear that, you know, if you go on the internet, these, uh, you hear this sound quite frequently. People just go on YouTube and uh, search on strange trumpet sounds and people, you'll find dozens of places where this sound is recorded all over the world. And it's them. I know it's them because I've heard them make the sound and been then interacted with them immediately afterwards. In, other, in, other, in any case, I heard the sound. I immediately realized that they were there. And I went outside. I went up across the lawn and looked across the bare woods to a little uh, a little grove, a little uh, open, uh, rather a little uh, glade. And I could see a dark shape in the glade and these other shapes standing near it. A, a dark uh, something hanging there like a big flying saucer, frankly. And it was just before dawn. Is this from your cabin? Yeah, this is my cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it was making a kind of a clanking sound and it was quite clear what was going on. I was not, uh, but then I started to walk down to it and I hesitated trying to take the scene in and heard a voice in my head so rough go, come on, come on. And I have to tell you, it felt like, like perhaps a trapper thinking to himself, will he, will it just get in the trap? Will it come on? So I turned around and went back to the house because I didn't, I thought I might not come back. And I, and I would leave Anne and, with a little baby and a little child and no, and a, and a disappeared husband and, and no insurance because she, she'd take her years to get the insurance money if I just disappeared. So it would be an awful situation for her. And I turned back. And when I touched the doorknob, there came three cries from above the woods. Extraordinary. Rich. Oh, oh, oh. It was her. I had heard her make similar sounds before. I went into the house and sat down on the bedside. And there was a presence there. I couldn't see it, but I could certainly feel it. And the next thing I knew, I was plunged into my babyhood into a a moment where I seemed to be gliding around in this strange room with these tall, uh, tall, uh, like stick-like forms in it. And then I realized 
It was my mother's bedroom and her little office in the corner of her bedroom. That that the stick-like figures were the legs of her desk, and I could see the desk itself. I relived in extraordinary detail, as if it was really happening again, the moment I first walked. The moment I first walked. They had taken that out of me in order to communicate to me that I had taken a step, but it was a baby step. Now, getting back to where we started, how much of us remains within us? And will they take it and live those experiences again as if they themselves were truly alive like we are? Is that what this is about, Jeff? It's a fascinating hypothesis. Let me ask you this question. I've never broached it with you before, Whitley, but it, it seems like it might be appropriate now, and that has to do with the question of reincarnation. I, I have to imagine, given your sophistication, that it, you've inquired yourself, uh, since these experiences seem to go back to your childhood, if they might not have originated in a previous lifetime. I, I wish I could say that I have some sort of definite proof of reincarnation, but I have only a few experiences of past lives that are like they're like little memories that don't belong in this time and place. Some of them, a few of them are very vivid. But I don't know if those are my past lives or something I simply picked up from the weave of life. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, we start out in this life as a tabla rasa. We are erased. There's no past, except in a few cases, there has been people with pasts. You know, there was a, um, a um, police uh, lieutenant in Indianapolis who was, had a past life regression. He was the boss of this group of detectives, and they were having a party. And one of the young officers had uh, perfected, had studied hypnosis for past life memory. And she hypnotized him, and to his amazement, he was plunged in extraordinary detail into the life of an artist who lived in the 19th century. And to the point in his studio, and he was the artist in the studio and he looked around and he and after the hypnosis session he remembered every single detail of that studio including the wine the man was drinking while he painted the paintings that were hanging uh, uh, around and, and lying against the wall of the studio every detail and being a detective he wrote all of this down over a period of days in just exquisite detail the notes are very extensive couldn't find anything of any artist 
in the world who had ever painted these paintings. And his notes were so detailed that he knew that these paintings, that this was, in other words, if the paintings existed, to him it would have proved something. But he went on through his life and never saw the paintings, never found anything, until one day, a couple of years later, he and his wife walked into an antiques shop in New Orleans, and there were the paintings. There were the paintings. And it turned out that the artist, that the paintings had been in a private estate and not available in the public space at all for many, many years, and the person had died and the estate was now being sold. And that's why the paintings were in the shop. Through all the time of his life, from the experience and before, the paintings could not have been seen in this life until afterwards when he, when he, when he encountered them. And uh, he believes, and I think he's right, that he is, was that artist. Mm-hmm. He finally went, he found out a lot about the artist when he was, uh, uh, once he was in the gallery and could see the paintings, he found the man's whole history. And it included the fact that he had kept detailed journals and that they were on, in the uh, Art Institute of Chicago being kept there. And he went to the Art Institute of Chicago and meticulously compared all of his notes about this man and his life and what he had seen in that studio with the, the, the journals. And it was extremely accurate. It was literally 100% accurate. So what happened? Is it, or am I saying that he was that man or that he picked up some kind of a signal from a strange place that we only half know or perhaps have only half forgotten and need to fully remember? I don't know the answer to that question, but th- this is my take on reincarnation. There's something there beckoning to us to come forward and come closer into those shadows. Yeah, I'm familiar with that case. If I remember correctly, the artist was either the artist or the author of the book about it was Beckwith. Yeah, yes, that's right. I have been struggling as I talked and <laughs> sort of hoping that between the two of us, we would come up with a name. Remembering uh, something Beckwith. Yeah. That's correct. Um, and um, It's a wonderful book, a very good uh, reincarnation case, especially because it occurred to an adult uh, under hypnosis and, uh, and the information was later verified. That's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, but is it, is it reincarnation or something else? Well, I'm sure scholars will debate that for some time. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the many cases of reincarnation in young children who describe past lives almost as soon as they can speak. And uh, I think that evidence is quite strong. It is indeed strong. Um, and But if this is the case, then we are something other than... Uh, we're not prey. We're something else. Yeah. 
Because if we were prey and our lives, our, our, our experiences were being completely taken and removed, um, we wouldn't have any memory of past lives, would we? But apparently we have vivid memories, not only of this life, in, for example, in my experience of the, uh, a memory that broke into the amnesia of babyhood, but of past lives too. So one gets this, it gets to the to Ecclesiastes and the long home, and the shadow being cast back cast back in time, and the sense that human beings are vast things indeed, and maybe these visitors are more peripheral and sort of flying around us like um, like uh, like 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 mosquitoes trying to get what they can of these vast, gigantic individuals who's, who, who, who sweep past, back past, across a, a vast amount of time. And for example, why would past lives necessarily, if the soul is indeed an eternal thing, why would past lives necessarily stop at humanity? at the inception of humanity. Perhaps we are looking, when we look at ourselves, at something so enormous that we literally can't see the whole of it. And that if we looked more carefully, we would find that we went all the way back to the beginning and the incredible moment, the first moment, when something conscious realized that the universe wasn't there. And out of that shock of notice, the whole thing exploded in the Big Bang. Maybe we go all the way back to there. Now, that's a very large vision, and I totally embrace it. I think it's it's a good starting point, and I think uh, the whole question of uh, the visitors or aliens begins to take on some perspective when you look at the universe in in that very very large way, and uh, with the possibility that, uh, as, as the mystics of every culture have said, that's who we are. Exactly, exactly, and you know, there's a wonderful book. Uh, by uh, Maurice Nicole called Living Time and the Integration of the Life, which it very subtly suggests this possibility. He was a fascinating man. He was a, um, a psychiatrist who worked in during World War I and was the man who discovered shell shock and managed to get the British Army from stop to stop simply shooting people who had been shell-shocked and try to treat them. And the Britons, Brits being the, the way they are, they listened to him and started to put these people in hospitals instead of in front of firing squads. So he was an extraordinary man. He was also a member of the Gurdjieff Foundation and quite close to G.I. Gurdjieff for part of his life. And living time in the integration of the life is where I, that, that, mention of the long shadow of the soul sweeping back across time comes from. Uh, looking for Carol Beckwith, and the man's name is Snow. Yeah. <laughs> you see, we've, 
between the two of us, we've actually identified him. I'm, I'm sure the viewers are going to be delighted that they can now look it up, yeah. and it is truly a wonderful story. One of the great, all-time great past life stories. It's It certainly is. Well, I know we're jumping around a lot, but I guess it's necessary to do that because your mind, and in particular, your latest book, Them, does exactly that. You You cover... For example, the archives of the impossible, as uh, our friend Jeffrey Kripal calls it, where your records, I, let, let me put it more clearly, the many thousands of letters that came to you uh, that were organized by your late wife, Anne, from people who read communion and, and wanted to write to you to let you know they had had experiences not like yours, but in some ways comparable to yours. That was the most interesting thing about the letters. The experiences were not repeats of my experience for the most part. And what Anne did, what happened was this. We began to get these great, great piles of letters. The post office was bringing them and just dumping them on the floor of the living room in a, in a heap that was becoming a mountain. I was overwhelmed, but I was very concerned because they all had return addresses on them. And so I couldn't, in respect of the people's privacy, I couldn't just uh, throw them out. And she said, of course, throw them out. We're not going to throw them out. We're going to read them. I said, honey, I can't read all of these letters. She said, well, you might not be able to, but I can. And she did. Over years, she read them all. And she would put aside the ones that had a complex story. And the others, she would, she, she would destroy, but in such a way that the, uh, the author's identity couldn't be uh, ascertained. I believe she shredded them, as I recall. Uh, the and after this had petered out over about eight or ten years, I guess uh, she had about thirty-five thousand letters, which she had cataloged. She and her secretary Lori Barnes had typed many of them, and they spent many years in a storage space in San Antonio, where we then lived because nobody but nobody cared about them. The Whoever it is who, who creates this artificial uh, enculturation of denial in this society, and probably the intelligence community and, and its various supporters and uh, camp followers in the media who are always looking for voices of authority, that sound authoritative even when they aren't, as long as they sound that way, that's what they're looking for. Um, in any case, it sat there. Jeffrey and I met. Jeffrey wrote me a letter, an, an email actually, about my work. And I was amazed that a scholar of any standing, and he was a scholar of significant standing, would deign to bother Whitley, the, you know, with, the, with this outsider, Whitley Strieber. And I sort of, because of Jeffrey's love of my work and his respect for what I'm doing, I became a sort of outside insider, which is what I am now. I'm kind of, kind of put in both camps, and uh, I'm hoping that a little bit more will happen because of them. In any case, he 
founded this archives of the impossible at Rice University. And he said, Whitley, I want those letters. And I thought to myself, how wonderful. And it is wonderful. The archive is not just my letters, but it's now many, many people at the edge of reality. Their papers, the papers of Dr. Jacques Vallée are there. The papers of the marvelous physical medium, Stuart Alexander, of the Englishman, are there. Uh, many extraordinary people's papers are there. And... Um, so that's the archives of the impossible and where the paper where they ended up the letters and they're available for perusal now actually and i'm sure scholars will be looking at them over over the decades i'm very concerned that one of the things that has happened in this apartment is it has been entered many times and important papers are taken from it uh, this and this happened has been happening to me ever since I published Communion, and uh, I have now got quite extensive security, and it hasn't happened recently. But my concern is that the archives that that things may be stolen from the archives, that the that we may find that the most important letters are gone, uh, that they be that they're being stolen on a on an organized basis. And so I'm making an effort to try to get the archivists to be quite careful about identifying people who want to look at that archive so that, um, that that's less likely to happen. Because there is a presence here that really doesn't want this known, any of it. And it, I, I think it is... What has happened is, it, we, and we can talk about why the secrecy exists, uh, but I think that people who are supporting that secrecy have slipped across a line without realizing it. They are no longer defending secrets that need to be kept. They are defending the institutions that kept secrets inappropriately. Well, in addition to the half of your book, probably closer to three quarters of your book, that deals with selected letters from from this extremely valuable archives. The second half of your book goes into the history of the United States government and, and some other governments' involvement with the, the UFO phenomena. And of course, although you don't say so in so many words, I think it's pretty clear you associate your contact with the visitors with this larger history of UFO sightings and contacts. I, I don't make it clear because I'm there is a certain disconnect here. We have even in the public space an enormous number of videos of UFOs flying around that are real. It's not a bunch of hoaxes. There are hoaxes, of course, but uh, there are also genuine images of these strange objects. We don't have any images of uh, 
non-human beings in in the context of human beings with human beings we may have some images of non-human beings and there's i think in the next few months there might be quite a few more coming out but there is still a disconnect between the close encounter experience and the ufos there's nothing that links them and until there is something that links them aside from saying well isn't it obvious uh you have to say that we don't know that there's a linkage uh and so that kind of aside though when this first started there was an effort made in my opinion to make sure that the government would not tell the public the truth the reason being that the first crash near roswell and these crashes are themselves very enigmatic because to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, back in the old days when I was having interactions with the visitors on a fairly regular basis, uh, and it, we were also finding out about these UFO crashes and things, and said, you know, Whitley, are, isn't this dangerous? I mean, these things seem to crash all the time. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's true, but they never crash with anybody in them, do they? Any anyone they never mention any bodies however uh general arthur exon did tell me that he had seen bodies non-human bodies this first crash near roswell and there were crashes before that we now know there was one in italy uh in in the 30s it's pretty pretty well documented and uh jacques valet and paola harris have documented one that occurred in a uh, near the Trinity site in uh, New Mexico in 1945, but the 1947 crash occurred a few miles from the Roswell Army Air Base, which was the most uh, sensitive uh, military facility in the world at the time in the in the Western world, because it was at that facility that the uh, planes that could carry atomic weapons were they were stationed there and they would um, that was the, the those planes were the reason that Stalin was not taking his four and a half million soldiers who were still under arms at that point and sweeping right to the English Channel and quite possibly across it and, and, and into Britain as well um, so the idea that someone had come close to that place with what looked to them like a spy plane of some kind would of course mean that they would immediately keep it secret and say it was something other than what it was and that became institutionalized because i think that general exon said to me everyone from truman on down knew that what we had found was not of this world within 24 hours of our finding it and but that was another reason to keep it secret. Once they figured that out, then their thought was, is this uh, a scout ship from, uh, is there another invasion? Because these were all soldiers who had just come out of a huge war. They were all military people, fighting men who were just, had just stopped fighting a couple of years before. And they were ready to fight again. 
and afraid they might have to. So the secrecy continued on. Now we have another problem, which is if you read David Grush's statement carefully, this is the man from the intelligence community who went to the intelligence community's inspector general with a whistleblower complaint, and his name has been all over the media ever since. And in his statement, he mentions that federal procurement regulations have been violated by the fact that so much material has been farmed out into the uh, into the defense industry and worked on in the defense industry without proper procurement protocols being followed. And this has been done because they've chosen companies that had a an, an existing uh, 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 classification track within the company that they could move this these this information down without having to worry about asking people to get security clearances that didn't have them and so forth. So it's been channeled illegally on a massive scale. And this is another reason for the secrecy, because all of these companies and the federal government are liable for this. And there has to be some kind of an amnesty offered, or they're never going to come forward, I don't think. There's recently the Congress has mandated that they, that defense industry companies with information bring that information forth. But I don't think they're going to, because there's nothing, there's no legal uh, penalty for not doing so. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a demand. As my father used to say about Congress, they make requests that are like demands. And anybody who understands the legal system knows they are just requests. So uh, there's no there's no reason for them to come forward unless they are hiding uh, illegal activity, which they are in fact doing. And so that might bring them forward. I don't know. But so the, the, you, uh, what I'm talking about is a long history of secrecy that has many inflection points. And in each inflection point, there's a different reason for keeping the secrets. <laughs> and they kept, they, they keep keeping them. And the bottom line seems to be, as, as Grush has claimed and other people uh, who, whom you and I know have uh, appeared to have inside knowledge uh, about that the various private companies now are in possession of uh, material from uh, crashed, uh, I maybe would call them UFOs or spacecraft. I don't know exactly what the proper term is any longer. And potentially bodies of, of some sort as well. Well, General Exxon said he held one of the bodies in his arms. And General Twining told his son that there was one that was still alive and who had spoken to him and unsurprisingly, of course, lied, saying we are not interested in human beings. Uh, of course, that turned out not to be true, as anyone who has had to, been close to the visitors can tell you they are, whoever they are, at least some of them are most interested in human beings. In your recent book, you point out that 
You've identified three phases of their activities going back to the 1940s. Can we go over that? Sure. Uh, the first phase is they appear. Then they create a provocation that has probably any number of motives among them to test our, our weapons and find out what we have and don't have. Uh, also to ensure that the military will keep their presence secret. And probably a reconnaissance of mankind, because even though they've probably been here or, or been aware of us for years, and it, it seems as if they have, but I don't think it's been as intimate an awareness as it has become since 1947, and that they were basically feeling their way forward. Um, so... And then, then comes the second phase, once they have established ways of, of coming and going without our military being able to do anything about it, even though they may very well have known it, uh, they begin to analyze the species. And that is what the abductions were about, where they were... Um, they were uh, taking semen and eggs and from a large number of people. And we, we know a pe about people in the English-speaking world, but very little about people in other parts of the world and whether or not they were even involved, we don't really know for sure. But they certainly were doing this. They did it to me. I had semen removed from my body. And, and many women had eggs and even fetuses removed. Now, this you talk about a provocation. Nothing could be more provoking than this. And um, so that was the second phase. And the third phase now is going on now, which is that they are emerging. And they may not emerge only as figures that, that look like aliens. I think it's quite possible there will be people involved who are not people in the same sense that we are and who are the outcome of that uh, effort to harvest uh, human sexual material. That they have, been, they have created a, versions of us that have some kind of a stake in their lives as well. But that's where we are now. And I, they told me many years ago that they will emerge as the planet's ability to uh, support us f declines and I didn't get the impression it was going to be fun I think that they're going to be terribly angry and the reason is that uh, we in, when we are innocent we are also accessible and when we are not innocent and know of them we're not accessible anymore and in, in, in that same way, and they're going to lose something. In order to save us, they have to lose something of what they want here, and it's going to. It, I've experienced their anger many times, and it's not something you want to have happen. It, they they're exquisitely annoying. Uh, they're ang well, this way, when they will come on the warpath against me, one of their classic modes of operation is to put subtle 
blocks between people I need and people I love to make it seem as if people I love are actually uh, responsible for bad things that are happening to me and that people I need are betraying me. This is, and this has been going on for many years and it's something, and they, they don't tell you in advance what they don't want you to do. But when you do it, then they get furious. And I'm afraid that that fury is going to be directed at the whole species at some point soon, and probably quite soon, because it doesn't seem as if the planet's uh, balance, uh, 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 environmental, uh, environmental balance is going to remain in stable for very much longer at all. And I know, of course, you've written about the environment in some of your books. It's one of your passionate concerns. Yes, inspired by them from the beginning. You also, in, in your current book, you, I guess I would use the word flirt. You flirt with the idea that, that these visitors are akin to what has been known historically as the demonic. Yeah, I play with that idea, but I'm, I'm concerned about the, those old terms, angelic and demonic. And the reason is that they come uh, heavily freighted with a whole series of ideas and beliefs that may or may not be appropriate to this situation. And certainly, when you're living with the visitors in your life, um, they, you do get the impression that there's something quite demonic about them uh, because they are so corrosive and so intimidating at times. But at the same time, when one thinks of what if a demon existed, really existed, would it be awful? And the answer is, it would. if it wanted to corrupt your soul, it would be anything but awful. It would be extremely appealing. On the contrary, it would be a temptress of the first order. A demon would be beautiful. And these demons are hideous by our standards. They don't even smell very good. But if we identify them as demons, we bring a whole lot of preconceptions into the picture. And the same way if we identify them as angels, and you've got two, two schools. You've got the, in the New Age movement, you have a lot of people who believe they're angels. And in the uh, uh, fundamentalist Christian community, a lot of people who believe that they are demons. I think that the, the Muslim idea of the jinn is probably better because it's much more nuanced. Dangerous if crossed, but a working relationship is possible. I just saw the Disney version of Aladdin in, in the theater where the genie, as, as he's called, does a whole song and dance number uh, called, You Never Had a Better Friend Than Me. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, they are... They are probably the only chance we have. And at the same time, they are um, 
quite dangerous. Uh, you know, it's uh, like um, like um, having a relationship with a tiger who is smarter than you are. <laughs> it's not going to be particularly easy to handle that. Whitley, if we were to take your book as a whole, with the many different facets, and, and it's a very, very rich book with enormous amount of scholarship in it, I highly encourage all of our viewers who, who are following your work and following the UAP UFO subject. This book is must, a, a must-read book. It does suggest to me that with each of the many books that you've written since Communion back in 1985 or so, your vision of who they are and, and what's going on and how this is impacting the human race becomes ever more sophisticated. Yes, it is, because I'm learning all the time. And uh, oddly enough, I have this little implant in my ear, which I have learned to use and I, it works extremely well, and it is a truly extraordinary tool, uh, the best research tool I can imagine anyone possessing. So since uh, Annie passed away, and it became operative, either because it's her somehow working it, or something to do with our own dead, which is a whole other strain of this that's extremely complex and interwoven into the whole thing, or simply a device that they created i was it was two men came here about a year and a half ago and explained how it worked to me and it was quite extraordinary when I mean, they came in the middle of the night and they were seemingly normal human beings and they explained that the slit i see in my eye with the words racing through it is this is this comes when i'm working it's not there it's not not there now but when I'm writing, it's there, and and words are racing through it at breakneck speed, and uh, it. They said that they are. It's bringing material up from my memory, things I have forgotten consciously, and drawing them closer to my conscious mind so I can access them. And this is why, when I'm writing, I have an absolutely fabulous memory. It's amazing. That's why the scholarship has gotten so good. Uh, and the other thing that it does is when you're doing research, all you have to do is think about something you need, and it comes and uh, in one way or another, in one way or another. not It's not like an, a voice in my head explaining to me, but if I need a, a, a question in physics answered, I will soon come across a paper seemingly by coincidence that that addresses that very issue. That's how it works, and it does work. That this is a consistent process that's now been going on since 2015, and on a very consistent wet basis. So, um, I have all of this on my side, and I'm trying to make something in my body of work that will be useful and will fulfill the promise that started with Anne when she said, you shouldn't call your book Body Terror, you should call it Communion, because that's what this is about.
And it has always been about that. Always. It is about finding a space within both species or both presences, the human presence and this other presence, in which we can interact comfortably and fruitfully. And in that space, we will also find our way out of the predicament that our planet is in, I would hope. Well, I'm under the impression from having read your book, and I can attest that, that the scholarship is absolutely amazing. I would say to myself, he must have been spending thousands of hours in libraries to come up with. <laughs> it suggests to me that you possibly have been selected by them as a spokesperson because you're so articulate. You're able to put into human language subtle ideas about them that I'm not sure any other person can quite do. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And uh, for whatever reason, it, it turned out to be me, a horror novelist of all things, <laughs> a good choice in some ways and an expected one in others, because from the beginning, they have never wanted to impose themselves on us. There's been a very careful awareness of the dangers of cultural colonization. And if you had, if they had chosen Carl Sagan, uh, or another great scientist, we would have had to believe every word he said about them. But they chose a horror novelist instead who does have a significant amount of intellectual capability and is able to, to go fairly deeply into this thing. But you can take me or leave me. You don't have to, you don't have to turn. And most people will turn away from me. They're, they absolutely will. Uh, I'm, a, I'm quite isolated in that sense uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the intellectual community. Like... Uh, uh, Lawrence Wright, the author of um, The Looming Tower and many other distinguished books, uh, took a brief interest in me. And I had not, he'd never heard of my work at communion or anything like that before. And we talked for 10 minutes on the telephone. And in, within three of those minutes, he said, oh, I know what this is. It's recovered memory. In other words, it's the false memory syndrome at work. He completely dismissed me immediately, in seconds. And But I have no intention of stopping. I'm going to keep on because eventually the visitors will come into focus. Whether it's when I'm alive or when I'm dead or not, I don't know. But I do know this, my work will be useful at that time to all of these people who are presently living in a, in a false reality. Speaking of false memories, theirs is a false reality. It's not the, 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 the um, secular reality of the general intellectual public is not real. It's not true. Something else is going on. I know in one of our earlier conversations, you emphasized to me, and, and you hinted again at it today, of your uh, early involvement in life and the teachings of Gurdjieff. And he would have said something very similar, that most people go through life kind of like robots, 
that, that we're so conditioned, it's very rare that we think for ourselves. And if I remember rightly, Gurdjieff also suggested the, the idea that you began our discussion with, that they are here to collect our experience. And didn't Gurdjieff write at one point that that's what the moon does? The moon is harvesting human experience. So, so I wonder if you would say that Gurdjieff had a, a deeper knowledge of these visitors than is obvious on the surface. I think he had a deeper knowledge but not necessarily directly of them. Uh, I think his knowledge was quite extraordinary. He called, by the way, human souls, the, the souls of those who, who died with essentially unexamined lives, who were living in a robotic, reactive condition at all times, uh, food for the moon. And by robotic, reactive condition, I mean people whose <coughs> attention is always taken automatically out into the world and never kept inside. There's no in-looking part at all. And that's most of us. And um, the practice of the Gurdjieff work is to retain that in-looking part while the other part is moving out in the world. And it's called in the work being awake. And uh, insofar as one can live it, it is like being awake, actually, in a world that is strangely asleep. You know, he did have, there's one fascinating thing, many fascinating things about the work of Giago Gif. His, his novel, uh, All and Everything, is a remarkable work of uh, a didactic and science fiction. Uh, remarkable. Um, and um, filled with all sorts of knowledge and disguised in you know in a rather a rather desperately poor fictionalization he was no fiction writer for sure but he did choose to express himself this way um, because he knew the importance and the power of story in that book he mentions something called the organ kunda buffer which is to say an organ that buffers kundalini energy away and that this organ was placed in us in the distant past and therefore we were we lost contact with the energy of the earth and our relationship to the planet that we live on and if you look at history you could almost say that this happened and it happened, at, and, it, and it, it marks the beginning of what we call history. And now it is at its climax that we have so ignored the planet and are so unaware of it as a part of our own beings that we are literally committing suicide because killing the planet is killing ourselves. It is literally, it is suicide. I've engaged with the visitors about this, and their attitude is it's all population pressure. They don't care about our politics or wars or anything like that. They just say that this is a natural outcome of overpopulation. And my response is, well, listen, it's not our fault. We've got these genitals on the uh, big genitals on the front. We have mysteriously lost our sexual seasonality. 
we are uh, naked and we have excellent memories and richly in, endowed nervous systems. So, of course, we're going to be running like crazed weasels <laughs> all the time <laughs> and, and uh, making too many children. And we've done that. Thomas Malthus said it clearly in the middle of the 18th century that what would happen now would happen. And it did. It has happened. It has happened. Uh, and uh, it's a bell curve. And we're at the top of the bell curve. And the population of the planet is now increasing it a less a dramatic percentage per year than it did, say, 10 years ago. And so we're going to go around the corner and down the other side of the bell curve soon. It's just nature. As far as they're concerned, it's just nature uh, that all of our politics, all of our wars, all of that has to do with excessive population pressure and a dissociation between us and our planet. And that dissociation gets back to Gurdjieff and this maleficent organ that was placed in us by basically a demon many, many years ago. Whether or not that's literally true, I don't know. But effectively, it might as well be because that's exactly how we live. I certainly know of other parallel views that seem similar. Ingo Swan the psychic who was largely responsible for initiating the huge push in remote viewing once wrote that uh, alien beings are concerned that we would become too psychic, that we have this potential and that they have created circumstances so that we uh, suppress our own psychic ability. Maybe they have. I don't know. Uh, because if what we were discussing earlier is correct and they are here taking something from us, basically harvesting something here, then it it isn't in their interest for us to understand. Because after all, if the sheep understands he's going to be sheared, that's one thing. But if the pig suspects that his lovely life is going to end and that his all of his life is actually happening because of the way it's going to end. He's going to be upset, very upset. And I think that, in a sense, the idea of us being devoured is an illusion, but it's a true illusion in, in a deeper sense that... Uh, People who don't have a hold on their experiences are vulnerable to losing them, to losing themselves in effect. I think that is very true, and I think it is therefore clear that whatever wants to harvest those experiences absolutely does not want us to understand the situation. They don't want people to get waked up in the Gurdjieffian sense. Because once you're in that state, your experiences belong to you. They don't belong to anyone else. They're not going to fall off of you when you die. The food for thought, for sure. Whitley, what a, actually, what a very profound note to end our discussion today.
I'm, I am so happy to be with you again, Whitley. You are uh, just about the most stimulating person I know, and I know many stimulating people. You certainly do. I'm shocked, shocked by that. <laughs> well, goodness me. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. And, you know, anyone who wants to engage with me further, it's very easy to do. I'm at Whitley at Strieber.com, so it's not hard. And do... If you do engage with me, engage with my book as well. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you back on New Thinking Aloud, Whitley. And, and you are welcome anytime you have the slightest little inkling that you would like to return. You don't even need to write a new book. I would welcome more conversations with you. I have a tendency to disappear into the books yeah. when I'm working on them, and that's happening now. I will remember this, though, and try to keep up more carefully. Thank you so much, Whitley, for being with me and with the New Thinking Aloud audience. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? The inaugural issue of the new Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can Download a free PDF copy from the new Thinking Aloud Foundation website.